Democracy, Bridging Facts and Norms. So my name is uh, Philippe Amperes. I'm a philosopher. I uh, teach uh, mainly at the University of Louvain in Belgium, in charge of uh, something called the Hoover Chair of Economic and Social Ethics, uh, which is a group of people now uh, with different uh, disciplinary backgrounds and all uh, interested in aspects of what could be called political philosophy in a broad sense and uh, with a particular emphasis, but not exclusive, on economic uh, matters. In my own personal work, uh, I've been working quite a bit on uh, various aspects of uh, social justice. Uh, one of my first books was simply called Qu'est-ce qu'une société juste? Uh, what is a just society? Uh, one of my other books was uh, uh, an answer to that question, my, uh, the answer I propose to that question, and summarized in the slogan that forms the title of that book, uh, Real Freedom for All. And then I've been exploring uh, other aspects uh, of justice, in particular, more recently, the linguistic dimension of it. And so one of my other more recent books is called Linguistic Justice for Europe and for the World. Um, in connection with this um, uh, work on justice, but uh, also related to public debates, I've been interested and active uh, for quite some time now in uh, the future of the welfare state, and in particular the question of whether it would be a good idea to introduce an unconditional basic income, and I think it would be a good idea. And you've been pretty engaged in not only on the academic sphere, but also in public debates about the basic income. How does these two fields of expertise work together? And why did you feel the need to not only do academic uh, arguments, but also to engage in public discussions? Uh, yes, but this applies more generally. I mean, because my involvement also in public debate is not only about the basic income or the future of the welfare state. It's also about uh, the future of my country, the, which, Belgium, which um, has a, a sort of a history and um, also current situation, which in some respect is conflictual. I think our institutions are not bad, but uh, they need improving in various ways. So that's uh, certainly one uh, area in which I'll continue to be active. Also the fate, the future of the European Union, something that's very close uh, to my heart and uh, to my brain, so uh, in which I'll, uh, an issue in which I'll uh, keep being uh, involved, the future of my own city which uh, and Brussels, which at the same time is the capital of the European Union. All these issues uh, are also things, not only basic income, which uh, I have been involved uh, more in recent years than, uh, than a longer time ago, in which I'll remain involved. And, uh, for me, there is a complementarity between my more academic job and, uh, and then this uh, public uh, involvement, uh, but in both directions. I think that the thinking I'm able to do in the ivory tower of the academic world and uh, also by that capacity, by moving around the world and meeting people like you or participating in this workshop and, uh, and uh, listening to, to other people, all this is, of course, relevant uh, for my political involvement. It helps uh, getting a sense of perspective, uh, guiding uh, the 
uh, actions, uh, the proposals that uh, need to be made uh, in my view, but it also works the other way around and certainly my academic work is also informed by my, uh, my activity, for example in my book about linguistic justice, well it contains a number of uh, anecdotes or uh, uh, real-life uh, issues which I um, became acquainted with as part of my uh, more public uh, intellectual activity, let's put it that way. Exactly. One question I wanted to ask you is how, how do you get started on topics and what role does empirical research play in your theory, theoretical work, if any? Or is it more this dialogue that you can have with people outside academia that feeds your empirical, um, the empirical aspects of your own research? Yeah, well, the, the way in which uh, I get started uh, on uh, any of the issues I've been working on in the 40 years or so of uh, my uh, professional uh, life uh, is the way I think any sort of research should get started. That is, you start with a question to which you have no answer, which you find important enough uh, for you to devote some months or some years of your life to. And that's what I also tell young researchers around me or the people who did uh, a doctorate uh, with me or other people at the Hoover Chair in Louvain-la-Neuve start with the questions which you find important and that will keep you going for a number of years and to which you don't know in advance uh, what the answer is. If you know it in advance, there is no point in continuing. If you don't find it a sort of thrilling question, forget it, uh, do, some, do something else. And then, uh, and then try to find the right answer to that. And of course, for many issues, you can't just find the answer if you rely on just one discipline. And that is, of course, the case for many of the issues I've been trying to uh, deal with. So if uh, you want to answer the question of what our welfare state should look like uh, in the future, of uh, how redistribution should be organized, if you want to uh, give uh, advice or take a stance on uh, language policy, well, you need to go into uh, economics, you need to go into political science to some extent, you need to go into sociolinguistics in order not to be naive about all these issues. And you can do so thanks to the fantastic uh, sort of treasure of uh, multidisciplinary competence which you have in our universities. Universities are a fantastic treasure in this respect and if you have good relations with colleagues, if you, uh, they will help you uh, sort of uh, focus very quickly on what uh, the part of the literature that's good and relevant to, to your work uh, when you venture into making Uh, some statements on some area which is not uh, within your very narrow uh, range of expertise where you have people who can give you uh, feedback on that. So the workshop we've just had is a good example of that. And so it's, it's possible to be, to be bold in some respects, make statements uh, that may turn out to be naive, but thanks to the feedback of colleagues, researchers uh, around you in your immediate surroundings or around the world, This uh, is something that uh, can be fruitful and uh, lead to the best possible answers to the thrilling, important, urgent questions which we ask ourselves. Do you think then, in addition to having the help of colleagues to find the right literature and to get out of this possible naivety of starting with a topic, 
we could also start projects together or is it better to stay each in one's area and to collaborate only on certain common topics and ask for the advice of other researchers in other disciplines? Or can we start projects together? I think there is no general answer to that question. It really depends uh, on the particular question. It depends on how uh, easily it is for you to find colleagues who might be interested in more or less the same question as you. And it may also simply depend on your personal temperament. And so some people will feel happier working on their own and then after a while subjecting what uh, they have produced to their colleagues. Other people need the simulation, the stimulation of other people with whom to, to work from the start. So uh, I really think there is no general answer to that question. You wrote in your book, uh, Just Democracy, the Rolls Machiavelli program, that political philosophers should tell the democratic majority what it should decide and why, including as regard institutions that will modify its own functioning and lead to it take decisions different from what it otherwise would. That seems like a huge responsibility for political philosophers and I was wondering how, how exactly to implement that. Yes, a huge responsibility. It was also a very long sentence. <laughs> But uh, yes, it's something I still uh, agree with. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, uh, I think um, the role as political philosophers is uh, uh, partly to answer the question of what uh, good institutions uh, would be for the sort of societies and the sort of world in which we live uh, uh, today. And good institutions must in part uh, just institutions, not the only virtue of uh, good institutions, but like uh, John Rawls, I believe that the first virtue of uh, uh, social institutions is uh, justice. And so we need to reflect on that and um, come out with uh, sort of answers, uh, well-argued uh, answers to this question. And then it's not for philosophers to impose that on society, But uh, we are given by this, uh, by our societies, uh, the freedom and the leisure, therefore also the responsibility to contribute to the uh, sort of dialogue of society with itself uh, about um, how to reform its institutions, what decisions uh, to take. And uh, some of these reforms uh, will concern political institutions and uh, the way in which political institutions are shaped will, of course, affect the uh, decisions that will come out of uh, these uh, uh, political institutions. And so we need, uh, so um, that's the Rolls Machiavelli program, we need uh, to clarify our minds uh, by talking to each other, by uh, uh, subjecting our Uh, conjectures about what justice requires uh, to uh, discussion by others. We need to come to an answer about the ultimate objective to be pursued by our institutions. But that's the Rawls aspect in the Rawls Machiavelli program. And then the Machiavelli aspect consists in thinking about how we should best shape uh, our political institutions, so our institutions that determine how collective decisions are being taken, how we should best shape these institutions so that social justice or including global justice is being pursued as effectively as we think is possible. And then can we do provocation as political theorists? We, we discussed a bit in the workshop about Nozick's arguments, for example, which are on the one hand useful tools for further reflection, but 
can they also be dangerous to a certain extent if they're taken too seriously by the wrong part of the population, for example? Can political theory harm in some way? And well, how to avoid it? Yes, I think every, everything can, can harm, but uh, the, I think there, there is a, a role for philosophers in general to sort of explicate some uh, in, or express um, puzzles, uh, difficulties, genuine intellectual difficulties. And you mentioned Robert Nozick, he was really excellent at doing that. And so that uh, he started uh, uh, thinking himself about uh, uh, John Rawls' theory as it was still uh, being prepared. So there were already colleagues before uh, the uh, theory of justice, Rawls' theory of justice was uh, was published and uh, we had discussions with uh, Rawls also in that period and then not so long after the publication of Rawls' Theory of Justice he published his own uh, Anarchy, State and Utopia which is a very stimulating book. I don't think at all it's uh, anything like a plausible alternative to Rawls nor, nor a book uh, of the same uh, historical importance uh, um, in uh, for political philosophy, but it's a very stimulating book, and it's it, it provokes uh, by um, pointing to a number of puzzles that need to be uh, to be addressed, and a number of other philosophers do that, and uh, and and I think it's important that they do so. Most of them don't have the slightest impact on uh, public discussion, let alone on uh, public policy. And um, so much that's for the, for the better. I mean, it's, uh, but um, of course, you also have uh, political philosophers in a broad sense that uh, have had a major impact on uh, policy and on uh, the general shape of our societies today, uh, which you may regard as being uh, at least uh, partly negative. One major example. In many respects, a brilliant example is uh, Friedrich Hayek. He had, uh, I think, it's, he was an extremely bright uh, economist and philosopher. Uh, that's not at all like Nozick, a sort of a, sort of a, a musketeer who liked just to to make positive. He really had. A, uh, a vision about what, in his view, was a, a good society. It is a, a remarkable uh, text, um, a short text he published in, in 1949 on uh, uh, intellectuals and socialism, where he says that, uh, to his regret, um, the world was becoming more and more socialist, so well, uh, as well in uh, the United States as uh, in Europe, because socialists had uh, dared, had had... Uh, and been bold enough to formulate utopias, and uh, you need a utopian vision in order to mobilize people in uh, the service of uh, a certain conception of society. And he said his role, therefore, uh, was to uh, concoct and uh, formulate a, a sort of liberal utopia, which could be uh, offered as an attractive alternative to uh, socialism. And he did that, and he published uh, Constitution of Liberty, which is a very impressive, uh, interesting, Im important book uh, that uh, initially had very little impact, uh, and then in the end turned out to uh, be at the core of the so-called uh, neoliberal uh, doctrine. And, uh, and so in this sense, you can have uh, uh, certainly political philosophers who have an impact on the world that uh, today 
maybe Hayek himself would regard it as uh, certainly not uh, fully, fully positive. And can we avoid that in any way? I don't think you can avoid it in any way. You can limit this possibility by having public discussion, public discussion. So just uh, talk to each other and talk to, to each other by uh, sort of implicitly or explicitly accepting the constraint that whatever you propose must be justifiable to all the people affected, regarded as free and equal. I think that's, if you have that, and in a way the functioning of uh, democracy or the, when it doesn't function too badly keeps driving us in this, uh, in this direction. And so we are forced to make proposals to our societies and increasingly to our continent at the European level or to our world that can be justified to all, to all in our countries, to all in the world and to all, including the future generations. And, and it's only thanks to this remarkable ability our species has and no other species has, which is to communicate with each other and listen to each other and thereby sort of laboriously develop some sort of sense of justice and that can go beyond our immediate uh, community. Thanks to that, that we can have hope for a more just future. Thank you very much. Thank you to you. Brought to you by democracynet.eu